We're going to start reading in John 11, verse 17 here in just a moment. Today, we finish the story in John chapter 11 of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. But as we have already seen in those first few verses, before we get to that one dramatic moment, there's a lot to deal with. There's a lot to go through. There are a lot of human emotions and issues that come with death. And as Jesus leads his disciples and then Mary and Martha and the rest of us through those questions and through those issues. So we have split our time in this story in two. The first part, we dealt with Jesus and his disciples. The second now, we're going to deal specifically with Jesus and the sisters and then the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. One of the things we learned last time is that everything that Jesus does is out of love. Everything he does is out of love. That was part of the drama of the first half of this story. Now, we're going to come back to that at the end of this, but we need to make sure that we're clear about what that means and how that works in our lives. Individuals, people, we do all kinds of broken, rotten, sinful things, but what Christ does is out of love. And as the book of Romans promises us, God is powerful enough and good enough to take every situation in life and put it together for his purposes to put it together for his good inside of us. And we watch Christ lead his disciples down that path, lead Mary and Martha through, that, through their own hurts and pain. So now Jesus would, as we read, and his disciples get to the village, the town of Bethany, and when they do, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. So as Jesus comes into town, he encounters the sisters, he encounters the rest of the mourners who are there with the family. With each conversation that Jesus has, we hear this faith mixed with grief and confusion. We hear faith in Jesus mixed with the grief and confusion that comes with loss. And then Jesus is going to respond by drawing them into himself. And Jesus will respond in this magnificent way by actually weeping with them at this moment. So this is a powerful combination of events inside of their lives, of Jesus walking them through it, of us watching Jesus deal with this. this is a powerful combination of death, of grief, of confusion, of belief in Jesus and what that means in a moment like this, and then resurrection. Jesus uses this moment to begin to talk about resurrection. So as we pay attention to Jesus and the sisters and we get to the resurrection of Lazarus, here's what's going to help us make sense of this passage of Scripture. And the first is exactly that, the combination of sorrow and hope, the combination of sorrow and hope that we read in these conversations. Not every human emotion is a clean, single emotion. Well, how are you feeling today? Well, I don't know exactly how to answer that question because there's about four things I feel all at once right now, and it's a little bit confusing and a little bit overwhelming. This is what human emotions are like. The ups and downs of life draw all kinds of things out of us at once. And when it comes to death and the follower of Jesus Christ, it's no different. So we're going to listen to some very human conversations between Mary and Martha and Jesus, a combination of sorrow and of hope in Christ. We're going to read that Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. So what about a God who weeps with us? Who is that God? 
What is he like? Why does Jesus weep in this moment? He knew Lazarus was dead. Why does he weep? As we unfold this passage, we're going to discover it's more than just weeping. It's anger. Jesus gets angry. He gets visibly upset to those around him. So what does Jesus have to be angry about in this moment? And then this powerful passage of Scripture, I hope if nothing else, we take away this passage of Scripture with us this morning. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead twice. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead twice. Let's begin reading. Chapter 11, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. The nearness to Jerusalem means that there's a lot of friends and family that have come. It also means that Jesus is drawing closer to the danger that's in that city, the people who want to kill him, and he's drawing near, actually, to the cross itself. So many come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I and the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's powerful stuff just reading that through and absorbing this conversation in Christ's revelation of himself. So what we just read said that now that when Jesus had come and he's with his disciples, he found that by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So what that means in the Greek is he was really dead. He was definitely dead. There was actually an odd rabbinical tradition at the time that uh, we know for sure that someone is dead after three days. So that's kind of hanging out in the air in the background. And so we get to this moment, and John says, Lazarus has been dead for four days. There's no faking this. Lazarus hasn't taken a long nap. When Lazarus rises from the dead, he actually rises from the dead. And the sisters had already gone through the process of preparing the body for burial, wrapping it, anointing it, placing it inside of the tomb. You know, in this day and age, it's long before coroners and morticians and funeral homes. So a family member dies in your home and you take that dead family member and you clean them and you prepare them and you wrap them and you anoint them and then you're the ones who take them to the tomb and you're the ones who bury them. So this has been a very physical, hands-on experience that these sisters have gone through with the death and burial of Lazarus. 
And as Jesus is making his way into town, Mary and Martha catch word that Jesus is coming. So Martha is the one who runs out to meet him while Mary, the text says, remains seated at home. Now, both sisters are anxious to see Jesus. We're going to discover that as the story continues to unfold. But what Mary is doing is probably doing a a practice that is called sitting Shiva. So in this culture, you've got one person, a member of the household, um, the, the matriarch who sits inside of the home, and they are sort of the center of gravity of the mourning process with death and loss. And so as she sits there, she receives the mourners and the well-wishers. So that's what Mary is doing. It's not as if Mary is not anxious to meet Jesus. She's actually going through the process that these families in these communities go through as Jesus comes. So Martha runs out to meet him. And she says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Remember at the very beginning of the chapter, word was sent to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And word is sent to Jesus not just for informational purposes, but because this group of people know that if Jesus comes, he can heal his friend and he won't die. They've seen Jesus do this before. Now Lazarus is dead. So Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha knows two things about Jesus. Jesus has the power to heal the sick. He could have healed Lazarus. And then she also expresses this second thing, that he still has the power to do whatever he wants to ask the Father to do. But I know that you can do whatever you want from the Father. I do not think in these conversations that we can escape the sense that she and Martha, she and Mary are confused about why Jesus didn't come when he was called. Mary actually asks exactly the same question, same words. So can you imagine these two sisters? They send word that their brother is sick. They know what Jesus is capable of doing. They know he can probably get there in time. He doesn't. Lazarus dies, and as the two of them prepare and grieve, they're beginning to talk amongst each other. I know that if he had been here, he would have healed Lazarus. So when they see Jesus, both of them say the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha In this conversation, as she opens this conversation, she expresses sorrow, expectation, and hope, all wrapped up in one short conversation. You could have healed him, but he's dead. But I know you can do whatever you ask the Father to do. In fact, I know there is this hope of the resurrection that in the end he will rise with all of God's people and I will be with him. I know all of that. So she expresses every one of those things at once in this conversation with Jesus. Martha knows Jesus could have stopped this. She knows that Jesus can do anything. And I think that this is a great pair of things to express to Jesus in a moment of sorrow and pain and confusion. I think you could have fixed this. You didn't. But I know who you are and the kind of power you have, and there's coming a day when everything will be settled and I will see all of my loved ones. But I wish you would come earlier. I think this is a magnificent set of things to express to Jesus. This is very much the psalmist. This is very much the prophet's. 
Lord, would you do this? I want you to do this. This is going wrong. Would you please intervene? But I know that you are Lord of heavens and your glory is beyond expressing. This is the kind of language it is in the heart of people like Mary and Martha. And Martha says, I know he will rise again. She does have that final eternal hope that Lazarus is with God and will be with him for all of eternity. And even though she has that same big picture hope that every child of God does, she was looking for something more specific. Friends, I hope this feels very human to you. Some of you have expressed or felt exactly the same set of things. And maybe you didn't know exactly what to do with it. I think we should do with it what Mary and Martha do with it. We lay every one of these things at the feet of Jesus Christ. Every one of these things, what we had wished for, how we feel disappointed, all of our expectation, and all of our hope that is in Jesus. So what does Jesus say? We go through this conversation. In fact, Jesus tells you, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know, I know there is that great big final eternal hope that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So then Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Notice this. I love these kinds of things between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is not bothered at all by Martha's conversation. He's not bothered at all by the mixture of things that she expresses to him. Jesus does not respond to Martha or Mary by saying, you know, if you only had more faith, this would not have happened. It's not what he says. It's not what he says. Christ's response to our mixture of sorrow and hope is to focus our attention on him. For him to stand there with that sister, to look her in the eyes and say, Martha, I'm the answer to all of this. I am the resurrection and the life. What Jesus does with the disciples is he takes that moment of death and he places it in, in the, the, the rank of priority in our lives. That moment of death, as dramatic as that is, he places it beneath him. And then when Jesus gets to Mary and Martha, he takes everything that they have gone through in the death and the preparation and the burial, and he says, I know what that's like, but I need you to know who I am. He places even the power of death beneath him. So he keeps drawing them to himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Death is a part of life, but Jesus is the answer to death. He's the answer to physical death. He is the answer to spiritual death. This is the great human drama from the very beginning. God creates Adam and Eve. 
He places them in the Garden of Eden. It itself is this perfect place for them to live. And it is so much that that we still carry that metaphor with us. This is Edenic. This is Eden. This is perfect. Nothing could go wrong here. Adam and Eve are placed in that perfect garden, and they were not designed to die. And Eve and then Adam disobey God, and when God then comes and speaks with them, what happens is two things. The first thing that happens is they are separated from the presence of God and from Eden. They experience spiritual death. And then God says the next thing that you're going to experience is something you have never seen or experienced before. You're going to die physically. But inside of that conversation in that moment, God plants this seed of hope. And he says, look, but there's going to come a seed of the woman who will be born and by his heel will crush the head of the serpent. Spiritual death enters our existence, separation from God. Physical death enters our existence, actual physical decay and death. Time passes, and then the Son of God is born, who is the answer to both spiritual death and physical death. Jesus says this, and he goes, Martha, do you believe this? If someone lives in me and believes in me, they will not die. He's the answer to both. Here's how the apostle puts it. To the Corinthians in chapter 15, the whole chapter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the resurrection of his people as a result of it. Here's part of what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, or he is the first one in the guarantee of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, meeting Adam, meaning Adam and Eve, for as by a man came death, By a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? So Scripture is clear, and Jesus is pressing this moment before we get to the tomb. Before we get to rolling the stone away from the tomb, before we get to the smell that comes out of the tomb, before we get to Jesus commanding Lazarus to come forth, Mary looks at this sister who's lost her brother and says, do you believe this? If we believe in him, we will not see death. Our bodies may die, but our souls will never be separated from the God who created us and who loves us. In Luke chapter 23 tells part of the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the two criminals that he is crucified alongside. And one of those two criminals sees Jesus for who he is. And here's part of that conversation. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You're going to die today but you're going to be with me in paradise. As the Apostle Paul reflects on what's coming as the end of his life, here's part of what he says in Philippians as he's in jail. Philippians 1, verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If God grants me one more day, I'm going to live it for Jesus Christ. 
If God takes me home, so much the better. To die is to gain. Do you believe this? This question is aimed straight at us. It is an incredible claim, especially in the context of this story. The brother is dead and buried. And then Jesus says, there are some people who will never die. Do you believe this? Am I ready to accept the truth that this physical body is not all that there is? Am I ready to accept the truth that this physical world is not all that there is? It is very easy for us, day to day and moment by moment, to become wrapped up in the notion that this physical life is all that there is. Or if it's not all that there is, it's the pinnacle of all that is. Friends, there is another unseen reality that existed before this earth came into existence, before the universe was spun into existence. There is a reality that is unseen that is really real. God existed before all of this before you and I were born, and after all of this passes away and is remade, there is God. Am I ready to live, to believe as if God and His existence is what is really real? Am I ready to believe this? There is no other religion, there is no other philosophy, there is no other government official who can promise you this. Even though you die, yet shall you live. It's ridiculous to think that there is anybody else or anything else that can promise that and deliver on it. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And in this confession, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. What an incredible thing. Yes, I see it. I know it. I believe it. You are the Messiah. That's what the word Christ in the Greek is, Messiah. You're the anointed one that was foretold to come into the world. It's you. I love that confession. So Jesus speaks with Martha, and then he calls for Mary, and here's how that conversation goes, beginning in verse 28. When she had said that she went and called her sister Mary, sitting in private, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, well, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind men also have kept this man from dying? There's still that combination of grief and hope. So Mary meets Jesus. She runs to see him, and she's weeping, and she says the same thing Martha does. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So now Jesus has this conversation with the other sister. 
And Mary does the same thing. She expresses the same sorrow and the same expectation. Jesus, you could have healed him. I know who you are. But now in this moment, as Jesus sees Mary weeping, he's been through the conversation with Martha, the uh, mourners that have come, the, the, the other family members and friends who have come, they're also still weeping over the loss and the death of Lazarus. As he sees all of this, Jesus responds now in a different way. And the text says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The Greek for this phrase, he was deeply moved, is actually a very strong word. It's actually a very strong word. It means far more than just simply being upset. Or, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable because there's a lot of crying people around me. I'm, you know, I'm a little upset. It's far more than that. One of the things you do with Greek words when you're interpreting or translating or trying to understand what specific words mean is you go back through the rest of Greek literature that's being written around the same time. Well, how is this word used here? How is this word used here? That helps us then understand what this word means when it's used in this context. This is an interesting word in the Greek. In other places in Greek literature, it can be translated as I roar or I growl. It means I snort at something. It means Jesus visibly showed anger. It's not just somewhere in his spirit he got grumpy. It's that the people who were around him saw how angry he was. That's what the language means. What is Jesus angry at as he sees this crowd weeping? Well, if you read different study Bibles or different commentaries, you're actually going to get a handful of answers to this question. Some believe that Jesus is actually angry at the sisters for not believing. Some believe he's actually angry at the sisters. Some believe he's angry at the show of mourning when they should have believed in the resurrection. You're not supposed to mourn at a moment like this. You believe in the resurrection. All of those kinds of answers are completely wrong, by the way. It's not what Jesus is angry at. The text says Jesus wept. Easiest verse in Scripture to memorize. Everybody say, Jesus wept. You've memorized Scriptures. Congratulations. <laughs> Jesus wept. So the Jews said, those who are around who are watching this, who have seen him get visibly angry, and they begin to weep with everyone else, how do they respond? Look at how much he loved them. Look at how much he loved this family, how much he loved Lazarus. Jesus does love this family. And he weeps at death, and he weeps with its survivors. What makes Jesus angry is that it wasn't supposed to be this way. This is not why we were created for death and separation and this kind of grief. God created us for intimate relationship with Him. He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. But the entrance of sin into our lives and into this world broke that relationship. Our enemy exploits our sin and brokenness to cause even more pain and death. The sin that is in the rest of the world rolls like a snowball downhill and creates an avalanche of sin and death. 
So Jesus weeps. He's weeping with them. He's weeping for them. He's weeping at their loss. He's weeping at the consequence of sin inside of our lives. Even though he knows it will all come true and be fixed, Jesus weeps with us. Story continues in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Sometimes you can't beat the King James translation. Lord, by now he stinketh. (laughs) Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said, on, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, deeply moved again, said, all right, where have you buried him? Take me there. Same Greek word. He's still visibly upset. He's still visibly angry. Take away the stone. Martha says, now hang on just a second. Because when we do that, it's not going to be pleasant you got to love moments like this. So absolutely and completely human. Their burial process is not a process of mummification or embalming, but they do anoint the body with various spices and perfumes, and they do wrap it in linen cloths. And all of this is preparing us for another death and burial and resurrection. And Mary and Martha, who go to that tomb, prepared to re-anoint the body of Jesus Christ, but by then it is gone. It's preparing us for all of these moments. So Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? For Jesus, the process is straightforward. Believe in him, and then you will see the glory of God. I think this is important. Jesus calls for this kind of faith before Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus calls for this kind of faith from us before he is raised from the dead. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, Mary? Do you believe this, Matthew, John, Judas, James? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is able? Do you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? even if he does not do what you want him to do. Do you believe this? Because Jesus has said, if I believe, I will see the resurrection from the dead. I will see my Savior with my own eyes after my physical body has stopped. I will see him with my own eyes. So Jesus lifts up 
his eyes to heaven. He prays like this often, and he often does it when he's in the presence of other people, and that's what he does here. Jesus prays in front of the sisters, the disciples, and the rest of the mourners, and he does it so that they will believe in him, so that they will believe, Heavenly Father, that you have sent me, that I am who I tell them that I am. This is why this is all happening. Remember the very beginning of this story, John chapter 11, verse 4. Jesus tells the disciples, this does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And here we are at that dramatic moment. And Jesus just calls, Lazarus, come forth. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus really does literally actually have the power over life and death. He actually has the power over life and death. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. I don't care what claims people make. I don't claims, care what claims are made by organizations or institutions or religions or religious leaders. There is no one who has power over life and death but Jesus Christ. Who else will you follow but Jesus? If you can follow this man, why would you follow anybody else? Who do you propose as an adequate substitute for the man who can call life out of death. Who's an adequate substitute? Your favorite politician? Your favorite author? Another religious leader? No one else can do this but Jesus. I am stunned. I am stunned how so many people can still call themselves Christians but have so modified and changed their theology so as to strip Jesus of all of this actual power. There are people who call themselves Christians who say the resurrection is a metaphor, it's not literally true. The virgin birth is a metaphor, it's not literally true. The miracles are the way ancient stupid people understood things that they couldn't understand. Why would you call yourself a Christian and follow a man who has no more power than you do? Told you you have to put up with this every now and then from me. <laughs> Progressive Christianity is garbage because it is designed around removing this power and authority from Jesus Christ and putting it back on me. Why would I call myself a Christian when I'm trying to follow a man who has no more power or authority than I do? I want to follow this man. I want to walk behind this guy. Whether he raises Lazarus from the dead or not, he is the one who has the power over life and death. Some things I want to make sure that we hear from this passage of Scripture this morning. Sickness and death have entered our experience because of our sin, our rebellion against God, because of our enemy and how he exploits it because of the sin of the rest of the world. When we say that Jesus acts only out of love, we are learning to understand who does what. People do all kinds of rotten and evil things, and our sin is a soul sickness that leads to death. Our sin is not a moral tweaking that if we were better people, everything would be fine. It is a soul sickness. 
that leads to death. But everything that he does is love, mercy, justice, and holiness. The power of resurrection belongs to Jesus alone. If we hope in this life alone, it will break us. If our hope is in this world alone, this life alone, it will break us. If we hope in Jesus Christ, even the worst that this life can give us is no match for the one who is the resurrection and the life. The worst this world can give us is no match for Jesus. Jesus has been doing this now. He's been teaching this with the disciples, Martha, Mary, and now us. That one thing that you think is the worst thing the world can do to you, I am more than it. I am greater than it. Do you believe this? Are you ready to live as if this is true? I was reminded of this psalm, this passage in Psalm 139. Listen to how the psalmist reflects on who God is versus everything else. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall, come, shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, disciples could not see past that point of death. It is absolutely opaque to us, but it is completely transparent to Jesus Christ. The darkness is even light to you. You see it as if the sun is out. This is the Jesus we follow. This is important as well. In our loss, in our pain, in our confusion, it is very tempting and very common for the human heart to ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Why is it going like this? In fact, I am sure that's underneath the surface with everybody we've dealt with inside of this chapter. Why didn't you come and heal my brother? But here's one of the things we learn in the story of Lazarus. Answering why is hard, if not often impossible. Answering who is easy. That's what Jesus does. I'm answering your questions with who do I pay attention to? Lazarus was given back to his family on that day. At some point in the future, Lazarus dies again. So when he dies again, where are we going to put our hope? What are we going to believe? What are we going to do? We've learned something about Jesus. Will we hang on to it? Some point in the future, he dies again. His first resurrection acts like a guarantee of his second. He belonged to God. Christ in his grace and power brought him back to his family. 
Guess what? Lazarus is with Jesus and he is alive and well. So are Mary and Martha and the rest of those disciples. Because this is life in Jesus Christ. This is what it means. Though you die, yet shall you live. So Jesus raises Lazarus a second time. And he lives forever with not just his Savior, but a man who was his friend, Jesus Christ. Answering the question why is hard. Answering who with Jesus is always easy. And then this is something to hold on to. Jesus is the God who weeps with us and who suffered for us to solve our weeping. He weeps with them. He sees and knows and experiences the pain of that loss, of that brokenness. He knows what happened in the garden. He knows what's still yet to come. And yet he is the God who walks into this flesh. He is God incarnate who walks with us through this life and he sees this pain and he weeps with us. But he is the God who is on his way to the cross, the tomb, and out the other side. He is the God who suffers for us in our place and it is his suffering and his resurrection and his power that will solve all our weeping. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ have tools to deal with life that don't exist outside of the church, that just don't exist outside of the family of God and those who follow Jesus Christ. There is so much right now inside of our culture that turns difficulty and suffering into perpetual victimhood. It actually locks people into those roles. But what if the church learns how to take suffering and turn it into a path to Jesus and a path to healing and a path ultimately to resurrection and transformation? An actual path out of suffering. An actual path to hope and to change. The one who looks at us in those moments and says, listen, I am the resurrection and the life. God in flesh lost a friend to death. He saw the pain that it caused and he wept. Jesus is no disconnected mystic who says things like, suffering is an illusion. This is the God who gets angry at death goes to the cross and conquers it so that we might live. That's this God. That's this Jesus. God in flesh will go to the cross, suffer every ounce of pain and die and rise again. Why? To solve our weeping. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4 very end of the story, it says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things are passed away. He is the God who weeps with us and suffers for us to solve our weeping. Do you believe this? Does your life tell us that you believe this? 